I have this memory, or at least I think it's a memory, of returning north with my dad as a kid. We lived in Sault Ste. Marie at the time and used to drive downstate to see his family, taking these long, winding drives across Michigan. And this memory I have is of stopping at gas stations along the way, not to buy gas, but to scrape the bodies of hundreds of bugs off the windshield. I remember the way that they layered across the car window, obscured our vision, and even made it so that the wipers couldn't get them off. You had to stop at the gas station and really put your back into sponging them off in gross, buggy waves. The reason I don't trust this memory, the reason I think it can't be real, is on all of my latest drives up and down the state, I have never once had to do this. I've never had to stop to scrape away bugs. So what is this memory I have? I'm Ben Thorpe, and this is Eschatology. first time I ever thought seriously about the growing absence, as though bugs were just evaporating from my memory, was after reading a 2018 article by Brooke Jarvis titled, Of Course, The Insect Apocalypse Is Here. Um, people talked a lot about the windshield phenomenon, which is what happens when someone who hasn't really thought about bugs or the absence of bugs or uh, any of these issues, when you point out to them that there aren't a lot of smeared dead bugs on their windshield in the middle of summer and they know that that used to be the case and when you realize that something has changed it's you know it's alarming it's this feeling of confusion and dislocation of of what is happening Jarvis says for a long time scientists were cautious about raising the alarm around bug disappearance that's in part because there just isn't a lot of good data on what we're seeing in fact, the data we do have comes from limited data sets around the globe, where people have been collecting bugs for a long time, sometimes on a whim. One of the big studies on declines looked at nature preserves in Germany, which had a long history of insect collection. Together, um, So the study out of Krefeld uh, pulled from the research of this volunteer entomological society over decades, the the society has existed since the 1800s, and everything that they catch, they keep. I visited their headquarters in Germany, and it's in an old school, and it's just floor after floor and room after room of these jars of insects in ethanol that, um, as one of the one of the scientists there put it to me, he said, this gives us the ability to go back in time. Um, Dave Golson, a biology professor at the University of Sussex, is one of the scientists who worked on the Germany study. I, I should say I, I didn't collect any of the data. It was, it was collected by enthusiastic German entomologists over uh, a long period. And it's unclear actually why they started, probably just so they could catch some interesting insects to look at. Golson's study found a whopping 75% decrease in insect biomass across 63 nature protection areas in Germany in just the last 27 years. And, and yeah, when I first saw the data, I must admit I was kind of gobsmacked. I, I couldn't quite believe it, but it, it's real as far as we can tell. Golson says the big question is how to get a better sense of what is going on globally with insects. But 
that's complicated. It's just, it's just not many long-term studies, basically. We have much better data for birds, for example. If Germany has really lost three quarters of its insects, and if there's any chance at all that the rest of us have also lost three quarters of our insects, we should be terrified, you know, because that's a that's an that's a massive ecological change in a short period of time. Another place that has started to look back at old historical records of bug collection is Michigan State University. So, um, we have a lot of museum collections that have bumblebees in them, which is really great because it means we can go through, we can look at where these were collected since like, you know, the early 1900s and compare that to where we're seeing these species now. So This is Kelsey Graham, a research associate with the university. Graham's research looked specifically at bumblebee ranges, basically the incidence of particular bee species across the state. Yeah, so for 50% of the species we looked at, so six out of the 12, um, we saw a 50% range um, contraction. So that means they're probably in decline. Um, the other species, the other six are what we're calling stable. So, you know, they had either an increase in range or a slight decrease or almost no change. So yeah, about 50% we're pretty confident are declining in the range. But even the data sets we do have tend to focus on more popular species. It, you know, is there, obviously bees are a species that we love. I know we also look at uh, monarch butterflies a lot. Is there a lot of research being done about other kinds of insects uh, here in the state or is it largely focused on kind of those two? Yeah, I would say those are the two big players, and even within bees, um, honeybees and bumblebees get the most attention. Um, you know, even with my own research, that's true. Um, this has left massive gaps in what we know about how the insect world is being impacted, and scientists are really, really cautious about making sweeping declarations about what's going on, specifically when it comes down to causes. David Wallace Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth, who you heard from last episode, says scientists' reticence to raise the alarm about the impact humans are having on the planet is likely an outgrowth of the protracted campaign of climate denial. Yeah, I think um, it's been the case for a couple of decades that scientists were reluctant to talk about the scarier predictions that their own work was making in public. I think there were a number of reasons for that. Um, you know, they're temperamentally, they're scientists, they're cautious, they want to be very careful about what they say. Um, some of them were sort of trained through their experience of climate, with climate denial, where anything that was um, a little bit hyperbolic or a little bit off was used against them. But they also had this sort of collective idea that the public would respond to messaging about climate um, really exclusively when it was focused on notes of hope and optimism. And so they edited their own rhetoric around the issue to fit into that box. I think that that was long-term counterproductive. I mean, I think we've missed out and um, failed the public by not raising the alarm enough. When I look around, I see many more people in my own life, on television, when I walk down the street, in our politics, um, really everywhere, who are more complacent about this issue than they should be. And I see very few people who are already too fatalistic about it. And what that says to me is that we really need to move you know, move the public and then alarm can do that. Alarm can move people from the category of complacent to the category of engaged. And I say that as someone who um, made that transformation myself, prompted by exactly that revelation. I was Brooke Jarvis says for her part, she has seen scientists, especially in the insect world, becoming a lot more candid about what's happening even if they aren't yet ready to name specific causes. And that's, that's one of the things that scientists are most cautious about, 
you know, there are all kinds of factors that are presumably contributing to declines to the extent that they are happening. But we don't know, you know, we don't we're not able to say such and such percent comes from habitat degradation and such and such percent comes from the use of pesticides or herbicides. Um, but what is definitely happening, what we all know is happening, is what one of the scientists called the transformation of the world. Dave Golson it, says it's likely that what's happening is a variety of things taking place all at once. Loss of habitat, increase in pesticides, and possibly the global shift in temperatures. He says broadly habitat loss is part of the picture and points to some research published back in the 1960s by E.O. Wilson and Robert MacArthur, putting forward the idea of ecological islands. And basically, a small, an insect population on a, on a little tiny nature reserve um, is, is inevitably, it's a small population, it's likely to go inbred, it might just have a bad year and snuff out. And if there aren't a network of other populations nearby with individuals moving between them, then slowly populations on, on isolated small nature reserves go extinct one by one. Um, and so we could be seeing on these German nature reserves the kind of payback of an extinction debt from habitat loss that may have happened over the last hundred years. Golson notes that these factors are likely compounding, leaving insect populations more vulnerable to other changes in the environment. It's this combination of factors, really, that we should be concerned about. You know, insects may be able to cope with one or two problems, but if you bombard them, you know, if you remove most of their habitat, and you chronically expose them to pesticides and you alter the climate. And, but basically the pace of change of you know, what we're doing to the globe is probably just faster than, than nature can keep up with and they can't adapt. Um, and we're, we're in a situation now where probably most insects are surviving in much smaller populations than they used to have, um, which are therefore much more vulnerable to whatever the next change that comes along might be, be it climate change or, or something else. But whatever way you look at it, you know, there's people should be really worried about this because it's uh, it suggests that there really is something going badly wrong with our global environment. Um, this is, of course, not a problem that is specific to bugs. The planet has seen a marked decline in wilderness and a recent report from the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services estimated that roughly one million species are threatened with extinction. One of the more staggering reports that came out detailing the scale at which humans have overtaken the planet found that the weight of man-made things, so-called anthropogenic mass, things like concrete, glass, clothes, now outweighs all living organic matter. I keep thinking, maybe weirdly, about that Arcade Fire song off the Suburbs album, an album I used to listen to over and over in my first year of college driving around the suburbs of East Lansing and Okemos. That idea of shopping malls and pavement being inescapable even then felt relevant. Now, obviously, it's approaching reality. If you watched David Attenborough's recent documentary on Netflix, A Life on Our Planet, you know this. In one of his stirring direct-to-camera monologues, he talks about the massive disappearance of both wildlife and wilderness he's seen just over his lifetime. Since I started filming in the 1950s, on average, wild animal populations have more than halved. 
I look at these images now, and I realize that although as a young man I felt I was out there in the wild, experiencing the untouched natural world, it was an illusion. Those forests and plains and seas were already emptying. Um, so the world is not as wild as it was. Well, we've destroyed it. Well, not just ruined it. I mean, we have completely destroyed that world. That non-human world has, has, has gone. But insects represent what we don't know and maybe can't know about the massive global disappearance. The IPBES report that came out in 2019 dodges the question of insect declines altogether, noting that the global extent of such declines is not known. A 2020 compilation of worldwide abundance data estimated there has been a 24% decline of land-dwelling insects over the past 30 years. That's separate from freshwater insects that have seen some increases. Those numbers get more complicated the closer you look at a given region. In January of this year, a special issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences noted that rates of decline likely differ from species to species and habitat to habitat, with more generalized bug species seeing sometimes moderate gains and more specialized species tending to see the steepest declines. But all of this underlines what Jarvis points out about how understudied insect populations really are. So it's an invisible loss, but it's a a loss of invisible services that insects have been providing, most of which we are completely unaware of. You know, only 2% of invertebrates have even been studied to see whether they're at risk for extinction, much less what that extinction might mean to us. Jarvis also makes a point that I think is really important about insect loss specifically, that it speaks to our limited ability as humans to understand a decline in abundance as opposed to a loss of an individual species. We think a lot about extinction. We think about what it means when the very last white rhino is gone. And we we understand that as a tragedy and as something we should feel guilty about Um But what we don't think about is the loss of abundance. The decline of insects points to another really important trend that we tend to ignore, which is the decline of abundance of species. It may technically still exist, but if it doesn't exist in sufficient numbers to have a real effect on the ecosystem, then something very real and valuable has still been lost. Golson echoes Jarvis on this, noting that humans are really, really bad at understanding losses in abundance. And scientists talk about two types of amnesia, personal amnesia and generational amnesia. So, so the latter is that people grow up thinking that what they experienced when they were young is, is the norm. Um, and of course, you know, actually, 50 years earlier, there may have been many more butterflies or flowers or, or blue whales in the ocean or whatever. But whatever it is they experience when they're young, they, they accept as the baseline and then they, they, they measure change from then on in their life. But actually, even that, so the second, is, second thing, this personal amnesia, there's also it's pretty clear evidence that people actually are really bad at remembering what life, what, what the world was like when they were younger. You know, as you say, you Memories are tricky, you know, we can all think we used to see more bugs, but did we really, you know? So memories, human memories are 
pretty useless things when it comes to quantifying long-term change. Jarvis's article also plays around with the tricky nature of human memory. It's what's known as shifting baseline syndrome. You live in the world and whatever level of environmental abundance and health you see, you take that to be the norm, even though you're already starting from an extremely degraded state. And any degradation from there looks smaller because you don't see what has already happened. One of the most famous examples that um, helps people understand this is came from a marine biologist who looked at photos of tourists in Key West who went there to fish. And in the 50s, they would take pictures with these enormous fish that they had caught and great big smiles on their faces. And as the decades passed, the fish got smaller and smaller, but the smiles on the fishermen's faces stayed the same size because they had no idea what used to be there. All of this is why, Golson says, it should be particularly alarming, both that the data we do have is limited and that it seems to indicate such stark changes. Um, we just have these very few examples where we have, have some, some good data to look at. But, uh, you know, alarmingly, the, the, the few examples we do have seem to all point in the same direction that, that things are disappearing. There's another alarming point here. According to Golson, it's hard for scientists to make assertions about global insect declines based on the data we do have. But it's also likely declines were taking place even before we had data. That, that decline, that 76% decline, doesn't seem to be showing, to have shown any signs of tailing off towards the end of that period. It seemed to be, you know, a more or less linear pattern. Probably a pattern that started long before 1989, I should say. So, you know, there's no reason to believe that something suddenly happened in the late 1980s that was bad for insects in Germany. That, that Probably that 76% decline is the tail end of a much longer and much bigger decline. And so far as we know, it's still happening. So if one assumes it, it might continue, then we're going to be in big trouble. Back on the campus of Michigan State University with Kelsey Graham, we walk down to the gardens where the idea of an insect apocalypse feels distant. Bees are plentiful here, and the hum of so many insects makes our conversation about declines feel out of place, even silly. There is one primary question I want to drill down on. What do insect declines mean for humans? Hey, if you know, these sort of bees go away or these kinds of plants go away, what is the world that we're left with? You know, is it concerning or is it just different? Definitely. So um, even just, you know, within crop production, this is something that we're thinking a lot about. Um, like within the blueberry system that I work um, working a lot, wild bees provide um, a pollination service that can't necessarily be replaced by managed bees like honeybees. So, um, you know, honeybees do the vast majority of kind of um, most of our crop production when, that needs pollination, but wild bees also provide this service. And again, there's growing evidence that honeybees can't necessarily replace this service. So while, honey, while wild bees might be you know, only responsible for 10% of pollination of a crop, um, that 10% can't necessarily be replaced by honeybees. So, so certainly um, we might be seeing challenges with crop production if you know, we continue to see these um, declines in wild bees. 
Dave Golson is, I think you've already heard, a lot more explicit about the kind of world that awaits us if rapid insect declines are allowed to continue. You know, uh, the obvious one is pollination. Roughly a third of the food um, that we eat depends upon pollinators. Well, you know, we, you can't feed 7 billion people if you lose a third of the global food supply. And of course, we're not going to lose all of our pollinators tomorrow or next week. But the data suggests that we might lose them sometime not too many years away. Um, and, you know, obviously things like climate change are not going to get better anytime soon. Um, probably going to get a lot worse before they get better. So um, we should be, you know, I think people should be much more concerned about these environmental issues than they are. On the big, long list of things we don't know is how many various bug species we might need to keep various ecosystems plugging along. That's another thing that's so concerning about these invisible disappearances. We don't know what kind of cascading impacts they could have. We, we don't really have any way of measuring how, how many we need. I mean, we don't, I don't think we understand anywhere near uh, how ecosystems really function. Um, uh, you know, the, the, how many species do you need for, a, for a, a fully functioning ecosystem? Even a fairly simple communities, ecological communities, will usually consist of thousands of interacting species. And we just don't understand that well enough to know what the consequences of taking species out of the, the disappearing, becoming extinct um, are. Golson ended our interview with an analogy from Paul Ehrlich that has stuck with me months after we talked. Popping the rivets out of the, the wing of a plane. Um, you know, you can probably pull a few rivets out of, out of a plane and it'll still take off and land and everyone's fine. But if you keep popping rivets out of it, there'll come a point where it's not fine and where the wing drops off mid-flight and everyone dies, you know. Um, and we, we it's similar with losing species. You know, there'll, there'll come a point where we don't have enough and things don't work properly. But we can't predict when that's going to be. Um, but, you, you know, obviously, we'd be, if we were wise, we would avoid ever getting to that situation. So much of this for me bleeds into these broader questions about what it means to be alive on the planet today. Knowing that we are living in a progressively emptier world isn't just unsettling or depressing. It pushes back against so many things I've assumed to be true about how progress and human society work. David Wallace Wells puts it really nicely. It'll just be really hard to imagine um, the, the, arc, the arrow of time as, as pushing us towards better and better lives and a lot easier to imagine the past, the relatively recent past, as harboring um, a much happier, more prosperous, more sustaining system. Now, I don't know if we'll get all the way to a situation where we think that his, you know, the past was better than the future, exactly. But this sort of neat neoliberal idea that every generation is better than the one before, every generation is better for the, you know, life is better for each um, generation than, than their parents' generation. I'm not sure that we're going to be able to believe in those as simply as we have over the last couple of decades. And I think we'll probably get a very scrambled sense of um, what we think of as, as human history as a result. Brooke Jarvis, at the end of our conversation, quoted environmentalist E.O. Wilson in his vision of a world without bugs. Uh, he writes, clinging to survival in a devastated world and trapped in an ecological dark age, the survivors would offer prayers for the return of weeds and bugs. But again, to me, what's interesting about this question of insect decline is that 
even if we don't make it to that point, what are the things that we will miss? At the end of all these interviews, sometime in the hectic summer of 2020, I walked outside at night with a recorder intent on capturing the sound of all the bugs that were out. Working on this episode drove home how little we know about what's been taken from the world and how quickly we might be losing it. Of course, there is work to be done to try to preserve things, to try to save insects and ourselves from some apocalyptic future. But I've also found myself trying to appreciate more this moment that we're in, to value something as simple as the chirp and hum of bugs on a summer night when it seems that there are just so many of them, there could never really be a danger of them disappearing at all. Huge thank you to Brooke Jarvis, Dave Golson, Kelsey Graham, who all took time to talk to me for this episode. The music that you're hearing right now is composed by Ryan Hopper. Everything else was composed by Ryan Faber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.